Good morning, everyone. What a treat to worship this morning. I really appreciate all the, the energy and vibrancy of the singing. I don't always sit right up in the front like that. It was beautiful hearing you guys sing and worship the Lord. My name is Bob Priest. It's my pleasure to fill in for our pastor, Greg Montague, while he's away. I'd like to welcome all of you who are live streaming. And I've just realized as I've gotten up here that this is the 15th, isn't it? July 15th. Okay. Could you flip that switch to the live stream thing for me, Kim? Would you do it where it turns back and looks into the households of the people that are live streaming? Greg gave me these special glasses. Yeah, that's what I was suspecting. Wouldn't you know it, Michael? They're watching the World Cup. But thank you for streaming us as well. So here's the six. Greg said to give you this signal. World Cup turned down. Southwoods turn up. We got it? Okay, sorry. I just have to take care of those people every now and then. If we haven't gotten acquainted yet, I'm Sandra's husband. That's how I'm more commonly known. And uh, we've got five kids. They all live here in the Kansas City metro area. The best part of that at this stage of our lives is we have four grandkids that are also here. We have uh, Vivian and Daniel and Evangeline. And as they say in the sports world, a player to be named later because we have one coming in December here. So you might be, be praying for that little one and that mom with some special prayers. So that's a can be a tenuous time. Uh, we've lived here in this metro area for years, but that's not, where, that's not where we started. Sandra and I met as students out at Kansas State in Manhattan, Kansas. And it, <laughs> there's a few purple people around here. And so uh, we, were, we were going to school, we were going to church together, and I found out pretty quickly as I was getting to know her that she wasn't just a student visiting there, they actually lived there. Her family lived in Manhattan, and, and I was from here. And uh, her dad, as a career military guy, you know, those families tend to move around a lot. They had been a lot of places, but around Sandra's junior high years, he decided to retire there to Manhattan to be near the university and to be near Fort Riley. So that's how that whole story began. And Manhattan's got a, a tender place in our heart because of that. We used to go back there a lot. Don't have a reason to do that much anymore. But in Manhattan, Kansas, is where I'd like to start our little message for this morning. Because uh, we don't get back there much, like I said, but we were just there just several weekends ago for Sandra's 40th high school class reunion. Yeah, I was telling everybody 30th, and then I did the math, and I thought, man, I married a much younger woman. I guess I didn't get that right. So her 40th, so pretty neat time. And I'm not Mr. Social, but I went, kind of did my duty as the dutiful husband. And, you know, it turned out to be really good. I really enjoyed the time. I enjoyed mostly watching as Sandra reconnected with some old classmates and obviously hugs were exchanged and funny faces as people were trying to remember who was who and, and all the memories came back and all the old stories came to life. I mentioned that today because I wanna start out today talking about not reunions, but goodbyes. Because as, as much as I enjoyed watching her get reacquainted with every, everyone, it was interesting to stand by as an observer at the end of the night and see the goodbyes. You can learn a lot 
about the depth of relationship, the depth of affection between people by the way they say goodbye to each other. And so once again, they had the hugs, they had the smiles, they had the, hey, we gotta stay in touch kind of goodbyes. You come to my part of the world, let me know, or if I come there, you can imagine what it's like at the end of a reunion. And I enjoyed that. They were nice goodbyes, they were nice goodbyes. But as I stood there in Manhattan, watching those, I thought these goodbyes are so different than the ones we experienced about 11 years ago. This time not at a reunion of classmates, it was at a, re a reunion of Sandra's family. And they all got together very infrequently. Her, uh, her siblings, she's the youngest of four, they scattered to the four winds. She's got a sister in California, and a brother in Virginia, and another brother in Indiana. So these kind of family reunions are very special. They don't happen very often. And, and this one, not to be too heavy with you, but this one was kind of had a special sadness about it for us because we knew as we gathered in Manhattan this time that this was gonna be our last time to see Sandra's mom. She was losing her bout with terminal cancer. And, and she, she just loved Christmas time. Their whole family cherished that time. I really enjoyed growing into that with them as I came into the family. And she so wanted everyone to be there. And all her kids came. And all their kids came. And it was just this beautiful time we had together. And then as, as I mentioned, I wanted to talk about goodbyes. <laughs> then it came time for the goodbyes. Whew. That was hard because we all had to get back to our lives, all had to kind of scatter back to where we're from. And so the hugs lingered a little bit longer, that the words that were spoken were so tender, so full of love and gratitude. I can see a few tears in your eyes. I don't mean to do that, but it, it was just painfully beautiful to watch. And for me, it was just hard to leave. It was hard to go and return to our life. Mom was hurting at that time, but she had the blessing of her family around her. And then when it came time to, to say goodbye, it was so obvious how deep the affection was for, the, for each other in this family. Deep affection developed through, through years of close sharing of life, even for those who are scattered far away right now. I'd like to read three Bible passages for you this morning. They're all from the book of Acts. They're about a certain character that I think is familiar to a lot of church people. If he's not familiar to you, that's okay. We'll get acquainted with him a little bit this morning. Um, but it's about a, a goodbye. The first one's about a goodbye moment that happened in this gentleman's life. The fellow we're talking about is known by two names in the Bible, Saul and Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name. He was born a Jewish man into that ethnic group. Paul was his Greco-Roman name because he grew up in a time when the Roman Empire dominated the world and even the nation of Israel was under their control. So it wasn't uncommon in those times for someone to have two names. You know, one for the, the depending on social circles, right? What, if they're in with their Hebrew friends, maybe they're going by Saul and if they're in more... Uh, something to do with the culture. He would have been Paul at that time. He lived a tremendously impactful life. Inspiring study, if you ever want to take it on. We're not going to try to do that this morning. We're, we're just, instead of looking at the big picture, I want you to focus in on some narrow little snapshots of Paul with me, beginning with this time when he had to say goodbye to some dear friends. We're going to zero, we're going to zero in on a passage 
that occurred in the last decade of Saul's life. He was a missionary. I wrote down that he's a prolific traveler. As a missionary, he went to a lot of places. But at the time for this scene that we're going to read, he hadn't been traveling. He'd been kind of uh, parked in one place for about three years. He was working. He was preaching to the people of the city of Ephesus and that whole region around Ephesus that's in the country of Greece. In those three years, Paul's life had become deeply intertwined with the people of that place. Right before what we're going to read, though, a change was announced. Paul had let them know that he had a new assignment. The Lord had somehow revealed to to Paul that it was time to say goodbye to Ephesus and really that whole region and move on. He had a a new mission for him. And in revealing that to him, the Lord had let Paul know somehow that this was probably going to end his life at some point. His next mission would come to an end as as he was executed as a martyr. And he didn't hide that news from his friends. Admirably, he shared that with them, and he he went and got busy to pack. And And then they parted ways, and we have this little snippet here from Acts chapter 20, Verse 36, and then it carries over into the first verse of chapter 21, which explains how they parted company, their goodbye. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And then as if to let us know that this wasn't just a a one-way affection. It wasn't just some hero worship for this great guy. The, the writer of the book of Acts, Dr. Luke, gives us this other little insight. He says, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea, praying, weeping, embracing, kissing this tearing away that he describes. Feels a whole lot like what we went through as we were saying goodbye to mom at our Christmas time reunion. What a beautiful scene here as they get ready to depart. The people of Ephesus obviously have deep, deep affection built up from their years of association with with Paul. When you see this reaction to his leaving, initially you think that is so beautiful. It's so warm. But if you click your mind into gear a little bit, you might have a question come as it did for me and think to yourself, what are they doing? Why are they treating this fellow this way? It's as if they didn't know. It's as if they didn't know the truth about this man that they're showing all this affection for. The truth about Paul, also known as Saul. Had that been kept hidden from them? Did they realize that the one they were kissing and hugging and weeping about was one of the most despicable, brutal religious bullies of their generation? Didn't they know that some 20 years earlier, the demeanor of Paul, the direction of his life was captured very succinctly in one line from our second chapter, or second passage from Acts, this one from chapter 9. Listen to how he was described then. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Murderous threats. 
That's who Saul was. Literally, literally murderous. He wasn't just an angry person that had poison down inside him that spilled out every once in a while. Paul had shown himself to be a calculating individual who used all of his intellect and resources to try to eliminate a certain group of people that didn't agree with him on his religion. Saul used the power of the religious political establishment at that time to systematically begin eliminating a particular group that is described in this passage as the Lord's disciples. It's the people, men, women, and children who had come to to put their faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. It's people like you, people like me. So we watch him being showered with love at, at his departure, this, this horrible person just being treated in a, a loving and golden way, and we have this disconnect. How could this be happening? It isn't difficult to imagine the exact opposite would have happened at one point in his life, where if he said, I'm going away and you'll never see my face again, the Lord's people would be cheering. They'd be celebrating. They'd be thanking God for getting that guy out of our lives. But instead... He's being treated with affection. What happened in the life of this murderous person, this individual who went around breathing out murderous threats, so that he moves from that to enjoying the blessings and favor of the very kinds of people that he once hunted down? Was he just really tricky? Had he maybe kept all that a secret? You know, they didn't have a lot of ways to communicate back then. Is that what it was? Now, this isn't some Jekyll and Hyde story. This isn't some mystery where he was able to keep a secret. In fact, everywhere that Paul went, he was very clear, very honest. He was very humble about the horrible kind of life direction he had been pursuing up to that point. And he, and he shared that story and said, it wasn't until someone a whole lot stronger than me stopped me in my tracks and knocked me down, literally, that helped me get set on a new life path. This is his story. It's a story of transformation. And we have that story, thankfully, in three or more different places in the scripture. We can read about it in Acts chapter 9. We can read about it in Acts chapter 22. But I've selected an excerpt for us this morning that's a little longer than what we've read so far. Our third passage from Acts is from Acts 26. It's a a, a way of uh, recounting his story that's happening in a very interesting place for Paul. He's not just out preaching or talking to people. He's in a courtroom. He's on trial, but not for what you'd think a murderer should be on trial for. He was on trial before this powerful ruler of his day, a fellow named King Agrippa. He was on trial because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to the words that come from Acts uh, 26 as Paul shares about the moments when his life changed forever. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. That was a capital offense in their culture. So he's literally trying to get them to bring their own death about, okay? I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus. It's a city in Syria. It's still there today. I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There it was. That's his moment. That's the moment where the life of this dangerous individual just turned. And he went from being someone who obsessively wanted to hunt down anyone who followed Jesus to, to one who just passionately <laughs> began following that same Jesus himself. The transformation of Saul is trumpeted by skeptics and scholars alike that this is one of the best evidences from uh, early Christianity that the teachings about Jesus Christ are true. We have an avowed enemy of everything, opposed to everything having to do with the name of Jesus of Nazareth, suddenly, dramatically turning around and becoming a person devoted to that very person that he posed. A man whose name had evoked fear in the hearts of many followers of Jesus came to be known as this brilliant and loving communicator of that same faith he was trying to stamp out. That just doesn't happen. It's a transformation story. It's a wonderful story. I don't really need to even talk much more today, and you can walk away understanding the power of God to transform a life. But, you know, i got a little time left, and I would like to just try to, to examine this transformative encounter encounter a little bit, see if we can maybe gain some insights for what made this transformation possible for Saul, and maybe what will help us experience some of that in our own lives as well. You know, it all began with Saul meeting the real Jesus, didn't it? That's where it started. I don't know how you think about God. Some of us have kind of a a generic thought about God as maybe a moral force or some distant influence in our lives. Maybe we have more of a caricature of Jesus. You know, he's the baby in the manger from Christmas time, or he's, he's the Messiah on the cross at Easter. But, but Saul on the road met the real Jesus, who he is now in his resurrected state. The real Jesus, the, who Jesus is now since his resurrection, is a being of such glory 
that it, it says he outshined the noonday Middle Eastern sun. Can you imagine something much brighter than the noonday Middle Eastern sun? And yet Jesus' glory just made that look like a tiny little light bulb somewhere. He, he, he has glory now in his person. He's got a sense conveyed in the passage that he has extra dimensional power. He just appears. And just his presence there knocks Saul and his companions to the ground. Can you imagine what was going through Saul's mind when he mustered up the courage to say, Who are you, Lord? And the answer comes back, I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. He had to think, I'm, I'm a dead man. <laughs> this being with this power, and I've been doing everything I can to oppose his name, I'm, I'm toast. <laughs> that had to be the first thought. And truly, in Saul's life, there was a death taking place. It was a spiritual death, as his old way of life was dying. And he was experiencing something inside himself that we call being born again, a new birth as he came to know this real Jesus. I marveled at the way that Jesus treated Saul after all he had done. You know, we're often told, and, and rightly, you don't take vengeance on somebody. You leave room for God to take vengeance. You don't do that yourself, right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. This would have been a perfect time for God to bring vengeance down like a ton of bricks on this man for all the things that he had done and all the things he intended to do. But Jesus, in this place of dominant power, doesn't choose to do that. Instead, he, he defers judgment. He withholds that and pulls back. He, he chooses to honor Saul's free will in this moment. And even there, give him an opportunity to decide if he wants to take a new direction or not. With this ability to overwhelm and dominate, Jesus chooses grace. And that's where transformation begins for each one of us, right? We come to know the real Jesus. Not just some character of him, who he really is in all his power, all his purity. We come to know him. He helps us come to know the truth about ourselves. And that's where transformation can begin. You know, he may stop you right in your tracks like he did with this gentleman. Or he may not do it that way at all. It may not be as dramatic. It may be more of a whispering voice that you, you sense in your spirit, a prompting that's going on from him. Did you notice uh, that line in verse 14. I thought this was really e interesting, what Jesus revealed about his interaction with Saul along the way. In verse 14, it said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Do you see that? You know what a goad is? A goad's a big old stick. It's got a blunt end on one side and kind of a sharp point on the other. And it's used by people that are dealing with, with livestock, with livestock, maybe an ox to kind of get that animal to go in the direction that you want it to go. And it's like Jesus is saying to him, Saul, you stubborn ox, I've been goading you. I've been goading you. And instead of you responding and going in a new direction, 
You're just kicking against those goads. It hurts you to do that. It's hurting you in your soul to kick against those goads. Isn't that a good word picture? I kind of wonder what, what some of the goads might have been. It doesn't tell us in the scripture, but some of the goads may have been that, that had been kind of taking a little jab in Saul's heart. One of them may have been that he had seen examples in the lives of the Christians that he had killed of men and women who had, who had remained true to Jesus right to the end. Some of them had, had even prayed, oh God, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. We see that in the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter uh, 7. Or maybe for Saul, he was very knowledgeable of the scripture. Maybe it was the overwhelming number of prophecies and Old Testament passages that he really was getting clarity on had been fulfilled by this person, Jesus. All these passages that pointed to the coming Messiah, and as he really was honest about it, he could see Jesus is fulfilling every one of those. But somehow inside he couldn't acknowledge that he kept denying that goad. Maybe it was just something nagging in the back of his mind. Here I am, I'm excelling in everything I'm doing, I'm, I'm achieving my goals, and I'm just not finding the satisfaction or the contentment that I'm looking for. I, I'm not finding that peace of mind that I was hoping to have by doing zealous work for God. Whatever Jesus meant by those goads, what's really clear is he was working on Saul. He hadn't given up on this enemy of his. He was working on him. And finally, Jesus decided that the best way to encourage him to change direction was to knock him down, to knock him down on the road to Damascus. One of the other uh, selections about this story tells us he literally blinded Saul for a time. He blinded him so he could help open his eyes to a new and better way of life. Does that ring true to you? Have you experienced any goads of any kind from the Lord? Maybe a a prompting to take your life in a different direction. He still does that today. He doesn't do it to frustrate or annoy or bully us into some change. He's just trying to help direct us to the, to the way of life that will be good for us, will bring goodness to us, and will bring good to all the other people we may affect in our life. You know, we said Jesus uh, could have exacted vengeance, and he didn't. He chose to restrain his power, but it was more than that. It was, it was far more than that. In this transformative encounter that they had, Jesus offers Saul forgiveness. He didn't just withhold punishment. He actually offers him forgiveness. Saul had to be carrying around, whether he knew it or not, he had to be carrying around a tremendous amount of guilt for the things he had done. When we break God's moral law, that's one of the results in our minds and in our hearts. We learn from him later in life how much regret he carried for some of the things he had done, even though he had been forgiven. So you just can't click the undo icon on a lot of things, can we? Some things get done and there's no taking them back. Jesus had the authority to forgive him because of what he went through on the cross. You know, you, you could see in that one verse, 
ultimately everything we do wrong, whether for ourselves or for other, to other people, the way Jesus worded that one, he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul had never met Jesus, but he said, you're persecuting me. And ultimately everything we do wrong, everything we do against God's way, he takes personally. He says we're doing that to him. And Jesus has this heart for us to bring us resolution, kind of an ultimate resolution to this problem we have with God. It's an undeserved forgiveness that he wants to bring us to. Why is he the one to do that? You know, why can't we just say that to each other? Jesus has the authority to do that because of what he went through on the cross. The Lord Jesus, who never sinned, who never needed to be forgiven for anything, took on a human nature, and in that body of his, he willingly bore the consequences of evil as a representative for all of us, for all of, for, for all of humanity, for you and me. He willingly died to satisfy the eternal justice that is required to eradicate evil at the ultimate level of our universe. And what, what came next after that death, three days later, is what we have to celebrate. Because his purity, his, his divine nature shone through as the grave was not able to keep its hold on him. We sing a song like that around here. It says, death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. So when he extends forgiveness to you and me, it's, it's got power underneath it. It's got life because his power overcame the death that came to, to take sin down. One amazing part of this story for Saul is that, that Jesus had something better in store for him. His life mission moved from this power-mad religious terrorist guy to, to servant and witness. Those were the two things Jesus offered to Saul as a new way to live, to be a servant and a witness. Who would he serve? The very kinds of people that he had previously been forcing suffering on. What would he witness to? What was his message? It's a very special message that Jesus entrusted to him. You saw it at the end of that passage we wrote. He unveiled the heart of this message when he said, in our world, in this reality that we live in, there is a dividing line, darkness and light. There's no gray in between. He says, you're either in darkness or you're in light. And unfortunately, we all come from the factory with the default on the darkness side. So we have to make a change. We have to allow him to transform us from darkness to light. Paul accepted that. He accepted that new calling on his life. And when we see him after that moment on the Damascus Road turn, we realize how true it was because he spent the rest of his years sharing that message, writing about that message. It wasn't some mountaintop high, some short-term experience that he had. This became the anchor point for Saul's life and mission, and he embraced it even at the cost, ultimately, of his own life. All right, I'm going to kind of wrap you guys up here. Um, I just got a couple more thoughts. You know, sometimes we, we read about a guy like Saul, and we think... That was a really amazing story. It's a really amazing thing that happened to him. But 
he was a rat. He was murdering people. He's, you know, threatening innocence. I am nothing like that. Other times we look around church with kind of a critical eye, and we think there's so little observable transformation in church. Maybe the message from Saul and the message about Saul isn't really going to work for me. One of my favorite authors is a fellow named Ravi Zacharias, R-A-V-I. He's born in India, makes his home now in the United States. He uses this quote a lot. Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. He didn't come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And we don't measure ourselves against the evil Saul's of the world, the murderers, and say, well, I'm pretty good, so I don't, I don't really need that kind of transformation. Somehow I don't need forgiveness in my life. But every one of us, great and small, have, finds ourselves having offended our holy God. Every one of us needs to move from darkness to light. And as far as looking around and deciding there's not much transformation going on in the church, well, that's a little judgy. <laughs> you're probably judging kind of on the surface because without giving too much away from the stage right now, you would be amazed to know some of the transformative stories that have happened to people that are sitting in proximity to you right now. If you haven't been around this place for a while, I want to I offer you an invitation. Start spending a little time with us. Let some of the stories come out of what God has done in the lives of people that look really pretty nice right now. A bunch of shiny pennies in here. But some of us had pretty rough places we came from. And that, that just testifies to the transformative power in Jesus in our lives today. It's not just a one-time thing for Saul. Lastly, transformation sometimes gets portrayed as kind of a one-time thing. You know, I had my Damascus Road experience back in 68, got baptized, we're all good, right? And that's kind of silly, we know that. We're gonna fade in some of these things, most of us are. This transformation that Jesus does comes with uh, the idea of renewal. We need to renew our minds. We need to keep coming back. And Jesus offers that kind of fresh start to anyone who wants it as well. Why don't we stand? We'll have some closing prayer and we'll be done. If you are sensing the Lord kind of tugging in your heart a little bit, that you want that transformation for yourself, or you feel like you've kind of drifted away a bit, and you want to make that fresh start, use this time when I'm going to pray just to, to make that communication point with God. Let him know that you desire that forgiveness, that you want that, that relationship with him, and to know the, the change of life and heart that can come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for taking care of our needs. We know we need forgiveness. We know we need the freedom that you give God. So many of us are are captured by our appetites and our cravings and our lusts and our greed and our unwise life priorities sometimes. God, help us to, to respond to your goads and to change in the direction you want us to. Use us to serve and witness as you did with Paul. God, we know we're going to fall short. We're so thankful for the hope of the ultimate transformation that will come when you bring us into your new heaven and your new earth. Help us to live in light of that. Um, just be with anyone who needs to, to move and change their life direction.
toward you. Help them have the courage to do that today, Lord. Thank you for these good people. Thank you for uh, this time and this place that we get to share these things. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.